Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about periods, specifically how to have better periods in your fatigue recovery journey, even more specifically if you are recovering from something like chronic fatigue syndrome. We've already talked a little bit about periods in episode 25 when I interviewed Francesca Liparotti to talk about perimenopause and fatigue recovery. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend you give this episode or this episode series a listen first and then you can always circle back around to the interview with Francesca. But how this episode is going to work is I'm going to introduce what should be happening in a healthy cycle and what can go wrong. I'll then record another episode where I'll talk about testing for hormones specifically because that is something I do from time to time with my clients so I can share my experience here. And then we'll do a third and final episode where we talk a little bit more specifically about interventions. How can you support yourself with hormones specifically in your fatigue recovery journey? But before we go into all of that, where I'd like to start with this is just sharing a little bit about my personal experience with my periods, with my hormones in my fatigue recovery. And I would say that for the first year of my fatigue recovery, my hormones didn't really feel like that big a deal possibly because I wasn't paying that much attention to them, but maybe I wasn't paying that much attention to them because they didn't require that much attention. But it was after I had my mold exposure, everything changed almost overnight. Literally about a month after living in a moldy home, I noticed a significant change in my body and a significant change in my hormones. And then even for months after I left the moldy home, I would have significant fatigue around my periods. I would get um, dull headaches, which would kind of start from either the onset of menstruation or day two or three of my cycle, and they would last all the way through until ovulation. I would also notice an increase in body pain around my period. At the worst time, I would get horrible migraines, which would have me in bed for at least a day. And then you still have that horrible kind of lingering feeling afterwards. When my digestion was really bad, the onset of my period would often initiate diarrhea and then it would take me all the way until ovulation again to start to stabilize that diarrhea. And generally I just had less capacity, less capacity maybe for a couple of days before my period all the way up until my hormones began to rise again, probably about day nine or 10. And then I would feel a lot better in the second half of my cycle after ovulation. That was generally a time when I had a little bit more capacity and a little bit more resilience. So I really feel like I've had a good hormonal experience on hormonal testing. I tended towards estrogen dominance, which is something that I'll talk about a little bit in this episode, and we'll talk about how to address it in more detail in the third part of this series. But I've always been somebody who's been, I guess, a little bit more estrogenic. I do tend to hold a lot of my weight on my kind of hips and thighs, my upper arms, lower belly, those types of areas, which is the estrogen profile, I guess. 
And I'm also aware I do have some polymorphisms, so some single nucleotide polymorphisms, which we refer to as a SNP, which are basically, I have certain genes, which means that I don't necessarily detoxify estrogen as well. And that, if anybody is interested, is the COMT gene, C-O-M-T, which stands for catechol-methyltransferase. So the ability to basically break down your catecholamines and estrogen. And so having this genetic polymorphism means I don't necessarily detoxify estrogen as well. Actually, when I've done my Dutch test, it shows that I am detoxifying estrogen quite well, but I think that's because I support my genes, that I support my genetic predispositions. So our genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And if we're bathing our genes in a healthy environment, then they work better. And so for the most part, when I keep on top of that, it does actually work okay. So I am someone who's always been a little bit more on the estrogenic side and therefore a lot of my symptoms tend towards estrogen dominance and that was then exacerbated by I think the stress and inflammation from the mold exposure. And the reason why I want to share this is because how I approach the idea of hormones is that hormones are like the volume control of the body. So if the body is singing the tune of pain, brain fog, inflammation, as the hormones fluctuate up and down, as they naturally do across a cycle, that's going to turn the volume up on pain, inflammation, brain fog, or whatever symptoms you're experiencing. And so when we're looking at optimizing hormones, we're looking at having better periods with a chronic illness in a fatigue recovery journey, if you're experiencing something like chronic fatigue syndrome, it's understanding that we don't go and do something to address the hormones specifically. We can, that's kind of like the cherry on the top, but there's a lot of work we do on our fatigue recovery generally that helps with hormones because it's changing the tune of the body. So for example, in a fatigue recovery journey, you might be doing detoxification, which is good for your hormones. You might be doing nervous system regulation, which is also good for your hormones. You might be working on blood sugar management, which is also good for your hormones. You may be working on sleep or gut health or immune support. And all of these things are actually beneficial for your hormones because they are changing the tune of the body. And then as you have these natural highs and lows and different hormones, across the cycle, there's less of an amplification of the imbalance because there is less imbalance there. So that's one way that we approach hormonal balance and having better periods. We just work on the body as a whole. We, we have those foundations in place. And then there are certain things that we can do as fine tuning. So certain things that we'll use to manipulate hormones specifically. And that's really what this little podcast series is going to focus on more so because you can already listen to my episode on blood sugar, which is episode 10. You can already listen to my episode on supporting the nervous system, which is episode 9. You can already listen to my episode on sleep, which is episode 14, or my gut health episode, which is episode 12. So 
when we think about all these other things that we're doing as part of our fatigue recovery journey that are also supportive of hormonal balance, there's already whole episodes dedicated to those. So this little series is going to focus on those little tweaks that you can do for hormones specifically. But before we talk about those, I want you to just understand your cycles generally, because I think this is often where a lot of women don't really even know how their cycles work. I mean, we all have had periods for months and years, hopefully, maybe some of us have already struggled with this, but we've all got these female bodies, we're all having these periods, and yet often we don't even know how they work. So a good starting point is just to understand how they work, and then I'll talk about what can go wrong in the different phases of the cycle. And that's what this first episode now, or this first part of the series now, is going to focus on. So even if you don't have a cycle or your cycle is regular, it can still be really helpful to understand what should be happening in a healthy cycle, because then that also makes it easier to understand what could possibly going, be going wrong in your unique body. So your hormones will change across your cycle. So there will be a rise and fall in estrogen across your cycle. There'll be a rise and fall in progesterone across your cycle. And there'll be changes in other hormones like follicular stimulating hormone, FSH, or luteinizing hormone, LH. And as these hormones rise and fall, there may be natural changes in mood, in energy, in sleep, in digestion, in your cognitive function, in your weight, skin, or you know how much water you're retaining. But these changes should be quite mild. And when they become exaggerated or when they start to really impact your ability to live your day-to-day -day life, then that can be a sign of imbalance. So your cycle is broken down into three main phases. The first phase of your cycle is the follicular phase, which is typically days 1 to 14 of your cycle, although it can range from 7 to 21 days, depending on the person. Then we have ovulation, which is just one day or you know, possibly even just one moment in time. And then we have the luteal phase, which happens provided we ovulate, which lasts for 14 days approximately after ovulation. So therefore, if you ovulate on day 21 of your cycle, then you may menstruate on perhaps day 35 of your cycle. If you ovulate on day 7 of your cycle, then you may only have a very short cycle, for example, 21 days. So a healthy menstrual cycle may last anywhere between 21 and 35 days. And what I find generally with most women, if they are tracking their cycles, they generally know what the average length is for their cycles. They may say to me, oh, it's always between 28 and 29 days, or it's always about 31, 32 days. And so I think as women, we have our norm. And what we're looking for when we're looking for changes is changes based on 
our norm not changes according to the textbook norm because the textbook norm may be different to what is normal for you. So I'll break these phases down into a little bit more detail and talk about what happens in each one. So the first phase, the follicular phase, starts on the very first day that you bleed. And this isn't spotting or, you know, little bits of blood that may be coming through, but this is a proper flow of blood that would be considered the day one of your cycle. And here, an ovarian follicle, which is a sac that contains one egg or oocyte. And what's happening in this part of the cycle is an ovarian follicle is coming to the final stages of its maturation. So an ovarian follicle is a sac that contains one egg. And it's part of the ovary that produces progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. And it's a hundred day journey for an ovarian follicle or for this little ovarian sac to reach its fullest stage of maturation, which means that everything that's happening in the body for a hundred days prior to ovulation can be having an impact on this ovarian follicle. And usually the follicular phase of a cycle is when a few follicles, usually about eight to usually about six to eight, into their final days of maturation. And so in the follicular phase, we get a follicular stimulating hormone which stimulates the follicles and they produce estrogen. And then estrogen begins to rise and a fertile mucus is excreted from your vagina. And this is often when you might see that kind of sticky egg white mucus maybe in your underwear or on some toilet tissue when you go to the bathroom. And its purpose is to help the sperm, should you have intercourse, know where it's supposed to go to help to get it towards the egg so that fertilization can be successful. So this is all happening in the follicular phase and the most important things here are going to be the production of the follicular stimulating hormone as well as the production of estrogen. And if fertility is an issue, the production of that fertile mucus is also going to be important. So the next phase is ovulation. And ovulation requires a surge in luteinizing hormone, which ruptures the ovarian follicle sac, which contains the egg. And when this happens, you may actually even know that it happens. For example, you may get a little twinge or you may get some pain on one or both sides of your pelvis, sometimes just lasting a moment, sometimes lasting for a couple of hours. And in order for this to happen, we need adequate levels of estrogen, follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And so then provided that the ovulation was successful, we now move into the luteal phase. And in the luteal phase, the egg from the ruptured sac now becomes its very own endocrine gland known as the corpus luteum. And it's the corpus luteum which is responsible for producing progesterone. And progesterone is important, you know, should you become pregnant, to maintain 
maintain the pregnancy, but that is not its only role in the body. It also helps to reduce inflammation. It reduce, um, helps to promote sleep. It also has a calming impact on the nervous system in most cases. In some cases, it can actually be activating for the nervous system in some women, which is worth noting. And it also prevents against estrogen dominance, which is when we have too much estrogen relative to progesterone. Now, if you didn't become pregnant, that cycle of pregnancy is not a goal, then what will eventually happen is that little endocrine gland will be shrink and eventually it will dissolve away. Hormone levels will drop. So maybe about three days out from the end of the cycle, we'll start to get a drop in estrogen progesterone levels have declined as the corpus luteum is shrinking and then this is when your period begins and you'll begin to shed your uterine lining and you'll move into the next cycle. So what's really important to note about the luteal phase is that progesterone production relies on ovulation. Therefore if you want to have a healthy hormonal cycle and you want to have healthy progesterone production to balance out estrogen you must be able to ovulate. And then if you don't ovulate, you may not necessarily produce enough progesterone or any progesterone. You can produce a small amount from the adrenal glands, but you can still have a regular cycle. So some women, for example, may have regular cycles and never really realize that they're not ovulating. So this is why it's really important that we have ways in which we can check ovulation if we have any concerns about our hormones. So now that you have an understanding about how the different cycles work, let's look at what can go wrong in those different phases of the cycle. So the follicular phase, ovulation, and then the luteal phase. So remember in the follicular phase, we have follicular stimulating hormone, which is responsible for stimulating the ovarian follicle so that it can eventually grow and mature, ready to break and rupture when we get the luteinizing hormone surge. So here, any kind of changes in follicular stimulating hormone can be a problem. This can be follicular stimulating hormone, which is too high, which is often seen in perimenopause. But what I'd like to focus on today is follicular stimulating hormone, which is too low, which means that there's not enough stimulation to the follicles, which means that they cannot mature. And if they cannot mature, then you cannot ovulate. And this is what may often look like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome on a scan, because you have ovaries which are polycystic which means there's lots of little cysts lots of little follicles which means that one hasn't been chosen to dominate because the hormonal production has been inadequate and if we take this to an extreme example Low levels of follicular stimulating hormone are often seen in what is known as the female athlete triad. So this is a label for a syndrome, shall we call it, in female athletes where they're overtraining, undereating, they're probably very low body weight, have a huge amount of stress from their training load, and therefore they're not ovulating and they may lose their period. And so you know, likening a female athlete to someone with chronic fatigue syndrome, there's, there are obviously two people on very different ends of the spectrum, but there are similarities there, which is this high stress load 
and potentially being undernourished. So what we can learn from this is that high amounts of stress on the body are something that can impact follicular stimulating hormone and not eating enough, not getting enough nutrients in the diet may also be something that impacts the production of follicular stimulating hormone. In addition to this, the brain needs to talk to the ovaries. And so if there is anything dysfunctional going on with brain health, that could also affect the production of hormones. And so here we just want to think about those basics for brain health. So managing inflammation, blood sugar management, stress and nervous system management, good levels of oxygenation, all good levels of sleep. Those types of things are foundational for health, foundational for brain health, and obviously then foundational for good hormonal balance as well. Another thing which can go wrong in this phase is not having enough estrogen. We need estrogen to promote ovulation. And if estrogen is low, perhaps because follicular stimulating hormone is low or for another reason, this can potentially cause problems with ovulation. The other thing is that the role of estrogen in the first half of the cycle is to lay down the endometrial lining. So essentially the lining of the uterus that we shed when we have a period. But the nutrients that we require to make that lining are iron, B12, and folate. So anything that's involved in the health of our red blood cells will be important for the healthy production of the endometrial lining. So we can have perhaps adequate estrogen, but if iron is low or B vitamins are compromised, we may not be laying down a healthy endometrial lining, which if fertility is a goal, then that could potentially be an issue. Then the final thing here is if we have an elevation in something called sex hormone binding globulin, so SHBG, as the name suggests, sex hormone binding globulin binds to sex hormones. And if sex hormone binding globulin is very high, there can be various reasons for this, then it will bind up a lot of the hormone. So even though we may be producing enough estrogen, we're also binding most of it up, which means that it's not free and available to do what it needs to do in the body. And this is something that we may see in conditions like PCOS, and it's something that you can very easily test for. And I'll cover that more in the next episode where I talk about testing. So the next phase then is ovulation. And here you've already heard me say that ovulation is a really important part of the cycle because without ovulation, we don't get progesterone production. And therefore, the first thing I'd like to talk about here is how do we know if we're ovulating? I ask my clients how they know they're ovulating. And sometimes people will say things like, oh, you know, my app tells me. And I say, oh, what app are you using? Oh, no, it's just one of those period trackers where you just track your cycle. And I'll say, well, do you know, do you measure your body temperature? Do you measure anything else? How do you know that 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 app is accurate? And how does it really know that you're ovulating? And there is no answer to this because there is no answer. So that's the first thing I want to say is if you're using a period tracking app where you're just marking in, okay, my period started on this day every month and it's then predicting for you, this is when your ovulation is, 
it doesn't actually know if you're ovulating or not unless it's linked to something where you're measuring your body temperature and then you're recording your body temperature in the app so those apps can be useful just for kind of keeping an eye on cycle length and you know if you are trying to get pregnant maybe knowing when your fertile window is if you would like to have intercourse at that time but apart from that that's kind of where it begins and that's where it ends so we could maybe get an indicator of fertility if we track cervical mucus so cervical mucus rises with the estrogen surge prior to ovulation and therefore if estrogen is rising we might notice an increase in cervical mucus we might think okay now i'm probably just about to ovulate however a surge in estrogen and the production of cervical mucus doesn't necessarily guarantee ovulation. Sometimes we can see cervical mucus in the second half of the cycle after ovulation, or if you didn't ovulate, because it can be associated with high levels of estrogen, irrespective of ovulation and irrespective of progesterone production. So it's a guideline, but it's not a guaranteed indicator of ovulation. The next thing you could do is use urine strips to test for your luteinizing hormone and when I'm getting my clients to do testing for example a Dutch test and I'm asking them to test at the right time of their cycle I might actually recommend luteinizing hormone strips so they would measure you know use the strip pee on it see if they test positive for high amounts of luteinizing hormone and then they know they're just about to ovulate and they could count six days and then do the test post ovulation but we can have a surge in luteinizing hormone and still no ovulation so it's an indicator but it's not guaranteed Therefore, the best way to track for ovulation is to measure your body temperature. I do this with my aura ring, which is really, really easy to do because it just takes my body temperature when I sleep at night. And then the first half of my cycle, the luteal phase, my body temperature is lower. And then in the second half of my cycle, the luteal phase, then my body temperature is higher. And then that's usually a really nice indicator for me whether or not I'm ovulating. You can also just do this with a regular thermometer. So first thing in the morning, you can take your temperature, write it down. And what you're maybe looking for is some sort of shift from lower to higher as you transition throughout the month. So those are different ways that you can assess whether or not you're ovulating. Then in terms of what can go wrong with ovulation, well, we need that estrogen surge in the follicular phase to drive ovulation. And it's a very energetically expensive event. It takes a lot of energy to ovulate. Therefore, if energy is low and there are dysfunctional mitochondria, that can potentially impact ovulation. And you see here where there can be a big link between fatigue, because if you have fatigue, because there is some sort of mitochondrial dysfunction, that could potentially be something that's impacting ovulation. 
we also have to remember that the mitochondria are not only energy producing organelles, they are also the organelles of defense and they will shut down or change their role when it comes to threat. So essentially, if you think or if you listened to the episode I did on the cell danger response, if the body is in a perception of threat, the mitochondria shut down energy production for things like estrogen surges and ovulation, and they prioritize energy towards the immune system, towards that threat response. So any kind of big inflammation in the body, any kind of real or perceived threat, any big infections, so for example, if you get a virus um, or food poisoning just around the time you need to ovulate, that could all impact ovulation for that cycle. And what we really want to understand here is that different cycles are different and therefore you want to be tracking across different cycles to see if there has been any impact on ovulation or if you're regularly ovulating or not because you could ovulate some cycles and not all cycles. Um, so if you're trying to gather a bigger picture of your hormonal profile, doing across at least three cycles, I think, is a good way of self-monitoring. So the biggest thing that can go wrong when it comes to ovulation is that the body is in a state of threat, a state of stress. There's not enough energy to support ovulation. We can also have low levels of luteinizing hormone the main cause of which is usually stress again. And here, thyroid function can be an issue. So if you have an underactive thyroid, if you have an autoimmune condition like Hashimoto's, or maybe you have thyroid antibodies, but your thyroid function is actually normal, all of this could impact your ability to ovulate. So our ovaries and our egg cells have thyroid receptors, and low thyroid function can inhibit ovulation um, due to various mechanisms, which I'll spare you the details of all of the different mechanisms, but there are several. And so if you feel like you're not in a cell danger response, generally managing stress, but there's still something funky going on with your thyroid, that could be something that is inhibiting ovulation. And so then finally we get to the luteal phase. And the luteal phase really only happens if the follicular phase has happened effectively and if ovulation has happened effectively. Because without ovulation, we cannot get to the luteal phase in the first place. And so we need progesterone for more than fertility. And it's in this luteal phase that we produce progesterone because now we've got the corpus luteum, which is that endocrine gland which is producing progesterone. And we need that progesterone not only to fall pregnant, but also to reduce inflammation, to promote sleep, to have a common nervous system, and to balance out estrogen. Therefore, if you didn't ovulate and there's no progesterone production, or you're producing progesterone but not enough, that can lead to what we call estrogen dominance which, as the name suggests, is a dominant state of estrogen production. It doesn't necessarily mean that estrogen is high. Like If you were to measure it on a blood test, it may actually be normal, but it's high relative to progesterone. 
So you can have high estrogen and be estrogen dominant. You can have normal estrogen and be estrogen dominant. You can have very low estrogen and be estrogen dominant because you still have more estrogen relative to progesterone. And if this is the case, it's often associated with symptoms like heavy or painful periods, headaches, water retention, changes in your bowel function, changes in mood, changes in appetite and changes in energy. And one of the things, at least this was my experience in my own fatigue recovery, is that as the corpus luteum shrinks, if you were not to fall pregnant, progesterone is declining. Estrogen kind of drops off about three days prior to menstruation. It's it's probably different for different people. I've had a client do their Dutch hormones test on the very last day of their cycle because they did it at the wrong time accidentally and her estrogen level was still sky high on the last day of her period so estrogen may drop off three days before your cycle i have suspicions that it may even drop off three days into a cycle it may vary from person to person and it may vary cycle to cycle either way this is what i want to say about it is that when estrogen drops If it has been very high and very dominating and then it drops low, sometimes it's that contrast of estrogen being high to low that causes the symptoms because estrogen corresponds very closely with our hormones and our neurotransmitters, specifically things like serotonin and dopamine. And I know at least like one day, whether that is Usually I would say it's like three days before my cycle, sometimes the day before. I just have a day where my mood is like bleh and my motivation is bleh and I'm just not quite feeling myself. And I suspect that is the contrast of estrogen going from high to low. The good news is there's things we can do about it and those I'll share in the third part of the series. But for now, just understand that it's that drop that can potentially be associated with a lot of these hormonal symptoms and the more dominant the estrogen the bigger the drop and therefore the louder the symptoms the other thing we also want to know is even if your estrogen levels are totally normal and your progesterone levels are totally normal inflammation in the body can make you more sensitive to your estrogen and this is where we don't just want to deal with hormones specifically but we want to be working on reducing the inflammation as a whole and in my case a big part of that was digestive health um, parasites and just general gut imbalance and then also the inflammation coming from the mold colonization and the mold mycotoxins when I did those things or address those things then and there's less inflammation in my body, less sensitive to my own estrogen, and I have less estrogen-related symptoms with my cycle. And then finally, something I'll just touch on, which is that estrogen can also exacerbate histamine. So it can affect the uh, histamine breakdown in the body, 
And it can also exacerbate any symptoms associated with histaminomastal activation syndrome. So if you are somebody who is already a little bit histamine-y or sensitive to histamines, this may be exacerbated in that second half of your cycle. And this is why some women feel better in the first half of the cycle and worse in the second half of the cycle. Um, and that could be, for example, you're noticing that you're more anxious in the second half of their cycle. You're noticing you're not sleeping as well in the second half of your cycle. That also could be due to poor progesterone production, but it can also be due to the relationship between histamine and estrogen. The other thing worth noting in this regard is that progesterone stabilizes mast cells and upregulates the DAO enzyme, which is responsible for breaking down histamine. So it's stabilizing the cells and it's supporting their breakdown and therefore it can reduce histamine as a whole. So this is another reason why we want to make sure that we ovulate and why we want to make sure that progesterone is adequate to balance out estrogen because it can be balancing out that exacerbation of estrogen as estrogen stimulates the mast cells and then downregulates their breakdown. But remember, when it comes to histamine, the long-term goal is to remove the original triggers and that could be things going on in the nervous system, it could be gut infections, it could be toxin exposure, it could be blood sugar balances, in blood sugar imbalances. So there's lots of things we want to think about here. And I will eventually get to a full episode on histamine. I'm avoiding it because it's one of the things that I feel is quite technical and, and there's a lot to say. So I appreciate this has been quite a long episode, which is hopefully now why you can understand why it made sense to break it into three parts. But what I'd like to do is just do some kind of quick fire questions around things that can go wrong. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll just mention some of the things very briefly, and then I'll very briefly again just mention what to look out for. So having a period which is late, if your period is late, it might mean that you took longer to ovulate or you didn't ovulate at all. And that could be due to stress, due to inflammation, due to insulin resistance, so blood sugar imbalances, and a thyroid issue, and or a thyroid issue. Not everyone will have thyroid issues. What does it mean if your period comes early? Well, it might mean that you had a short follicular phase, so you ovulated very early. That's quite common in perimenopause. Or you had a shorter luteal phase, which means perhaps that your progesterone production is declining, again, common in perimenopause. Or it could have mean, meant that you failed to ovulate altogether. And again, that could come back to stress, inflammation, insulin resistance, and thyroid dysfunction. What does it mean if you get bleeding or spotting mid-cycle? So a little bit of bleeding or spotting mid-cycle can be normal. And this can be because we get this big surge in estrogen prior to ovulation, that little dip after ovulation can be the cause of spotting. Um, but if you are experiencing quite a lot of spotting or it's happening for several days, it might be worth investigating things like endometriosis, fibroids, polyps, a pelvic infection. This is where you should see your doctor or your gynae and always just err on the side of caution and get things thoroughly investigated. What does it mean if your period is very light? 
So an average period should be 25 to 80 milliliters. And if you use a moon cup, this is probably the best way for you to assess it. If it is less than 25 milliliters, it could be that your iron levels are low that you can have tested using a ferritin measure. Estrogen is responsible for laying down the lining of the uterus, which is then shed. So if estrogen is low, we may see a very light period. And here we want to think of under eating, stress, or perhaps even too many phytoestrogens. So things in the diet which can look like estrogen to the body, which are taking up too much of the space on the estrogen receptor sites of the body. Then the next thing to think about is what could be the possible cause of clotting or heavy periods. This is usually due to excess estrogen. It can also be if you didn't ovulate and therefore your estrogen dominate. There might be thyroid dysfunction. And there could also be other things going on like endometriosis or fibroids. So again, worth seeing your doctor, worth investigating just to be safe. If your periods are very painful, this can also be due to estrogen dominance, increased estrogen, because with the increased estrogen, we get an increase of inflammatory molecules known as prostaglandins, and these are responsible for pain. Often as well in women, if there's an imbalance of omega-3 or the omega-6 fatty acid GLA, this can also exacerbate painful periods, sometimes also the need for magnesium. We'll talk more about this in the, the other parts of the series. Um, and finally, if your period goes on for longer than seven days, you should consult your doctor. Maybe that you didn't ovulate. It may be PCOS. It may be perimenopause. But if anything unusual is happening, it's always best to see your doctor and have it investigated. So that brings me to the end of this episode. It's a fairly longish one today. There's a lot to share. Watch out for the next part in the series where I will talk more about hormone testing. Um, until then, if you have enjoyed this episode, if you do find the information useful, please share it with anybody else you think may benefit from hearing this message. And if you haven't already, I would love to invite you to leave a review for me on iTunes. Thank you so much and have a wonderful fatigue recovery day.